The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Thanks be to God. I love the story of the little girl who was drawing a picture in her nursery class. And the teacher came over and said, oh, that's really great. What are you doing? She said, oh, I'm drawing a picture of God, says the little girl. And the teacher went, oh, you do know that nobody really knows what God looks like. She said, it's all right, they will in a minute. At the start of this new year, we're moving into a new series called Long Story Short. Now, I don't want to uh, over-promise and under-deliver, but we're hoping that over the next 13 weeks, we'll be able to paint a picture of who God is and the story that he has been writing since time before time. It's, I suppose, a bit like a join the dots. You know, you, you start at number one and you work through and you don't really know what the picture is going to be until you, you get halfway and it, oh, it begins to kind of come into focus and you get, uh, you get the point. There's a kind of fancy theological term for that. It's called progressive revelation. And that's, when you think about it, what God does through the Bible. He reveals little bits about himself, about his character, about his plan. And as you go, you get a little bit more and a little bit more of that picture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all we know is that God is a powerful creator. But by the time you get to the end of the book in Revelation, there have been more than 400 names for God. So in 13 weeks, we are only going to scratch the surface. But it's going to be like a kind of connect the dots puzzle. The Bible is an amazing book. It's a big book. It's not a rule book, although there are rules in it. It's a story book. It's the story of God. It's written by 40 writers on three continents in three languages over 15 centuries. But here is what I think is unique about the Bible. It says it is inspired by God. Now, I don't want to just brush straight past that. I I, I want to go on record saying I believe that. I believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that he used the people who wrote it to write the words that he wanted them to write so that you and I would be able to get that picture of what he's like and how we are supposed to relate to him. I love to read books. I love to read books. But for me, the Bible is utterly unique in that regard. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged swords. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So what actually I'm saying is you don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you. It's actually a dangerous book to read. Because as you read it, God speaks. And when God speaks, you can't really ignore him. 
So there are over uh, 40 human writers. They range from farmers to fishermen, poets, prophets, kings and generals. It was written in caves and palaces and uh, and prisons and various other places. It touches on hundreds of controversial topics. It's filled with history that can be properly historically verified. It's filled with science that can be scientifically verified. It's a book with every subject matter from law to history, poetry to prophecy, gospels, epistles and an apocalyptic ending. And with all of those writers, all of those subjects, all of those years, the amazing thing is that it reads like one story. Why is that? Because although it has all those writers, it has one author. God. According to rabbinic tradition, every word of Scripture has seven faces and 600,000 meanings. So that's why you can read the same stories over and over again and get something different out of it every time you read it. It's an amazing and incredible book. Of course, in these few weeks, we're not going to be able to put it under a microscope so much as use a telescope to get the big picture. So we will go from Genesis to Revelation. There are 66 books in there, 773,692 words, depending on the translation you use. So it is a big book. And we're really doing a flyover. Here's why. Because text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. You go in there, you can pick any verse, and you can take it out of context and make it say what you want. But when you take it in context, it might not mean what you've just made it say. You interpret Scripture with Scripture. And if you don't know the whole story, then how do you put it into context? Here's an example. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, the Exodus, probably about the Passover. Now, if you've never read that story in the Old Testament, how God saved them from slavery in Egypt and God led them through the wilderness and God eventually got them to the promised land. If you've never read that story and you don't know it, how then can you expect to understand Jesus as the Passover lamb? How can you expect to understand what we do at communion because you've never got the background, the context of what it's about? Why is the cover that covers the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle red? Why is it colored red? Do you think there might be a point to that? Of course there's a point to that, they all cry, because they've read the story before. No, of course there's a point to it. And the point is that in the future, you will get to God because of the shed blood of Christ. What color is blood? Red. You see, God gives us these little dots that we join up. Sorry, this is not in what I'm going to say today. (laughs) I know, kind of running out of time rapidly. To me, the great uh, sort of a, a key to a great story is something that's called the inciting incident. Right? The inciting incident of a story is the event that sets the main character or characters on a journey that will occupy them through the narrative. Typically, this incident will upset the balance within the main character's world. You know, if this was Gordon Kennedy, he would immediately go to the Hobbit. He's there having his tea one morning and, you know, the wizard comes to the door and there's your inciting incident. If you're, if you're Abram 
And you're in Ur of the Chaldees, and all of a sudden God says, I'm calling you, and I want you to go. There's your inciting incident. So over these next few weeks, we are going to have a number of inciting incidents that will take us from, from the point of one change to the end. So, so we'll have prophets that work through. Then we'll get to, to Jesus, and we'll work through. So inciting incidents all the way through, because there's an amazing story in this book. And we want to get that overarching picture of what God is saying. Right now, I hope that you have no sense of motion, especially those of you who are sitting here quite quietly in the building. But the reality is we are on a planet that's spinning around on its axis at about a thousand miles an hour. It'll make one complete turn in the next 24 hours and you don't even get dizzy. Isn't that good? Not only that, we're on a planet that is speeding through space at approximately 67,000 miles an hour. So even on a day when you feel like you didn't get much done, you have travelled 1.3 million miles through space. That's pretty good. And those speeds and those distances are tiny compared to our galaxy and the Milky Way and other galaxies that are, are out there. The Milky Way is spinning at 490,000 miles an hour. But it's so big that it takes about 200,000 years to turn. These are big numbers. When was the last time you thanked God for keeping us in orbit? <laughs> you know, people say they, they've never experienced a miracle. Well, with due respect, I beg to differ. Do you know, the very fact that we are here is a miracle. It was Albert Einstein who said that there are only two ways to live your life. One as if nothing is a miracle, and the other as if everything is a miracle. And that's how I choose to live my life. And here's the point. We already trust God for the big miracles, like keeping us in orbit. Now we just need to trust him for the rest. A couple of uh, thoughts just to frame the story of God. Two points. Number one, God is bigger than big. God is bigger than big. The theological word for that is transcendence. And God is closer than close. The theological word for that is imminence. And what we see in these very first verses of Genesis is a God who is both transcendent and imminent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. Fair warning here. Albert Einstein said that science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. And I'm not a person who's going to turn a blind eye to science. I think science is really important. All the ologies, I think, are a branch of theology. I know that could come across the wrong way, but in Romans 1.20, it says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Let there be light. Four simple words in English. In other words, let there be electromagnetic radiation with varying wavelengths traveling at a speed of 186,281.7 miles per second. Let there be ultraviolet and infrared. Let there be gamma rays, x-rays, radio waves and microwaves. Let there be photosynthesis and fiber optics. Let there be color and health and life and everything else. As Elaine said earlier, and we didn't even uh, talk about that. Let there be light. 
Life is the, the basis of everything. Four words that God speaks it into existence. And light has been defeating darkness at a rate of 186,000 miles per second ever since. The word said in English is the Hebrew word that can be translated as challenge. I quite like that idea. It's like God challenges the darkness. Let there be light. Come on. God challenges the emptiness with his voice. But the famous composer Leonard Bernstein said that the best translation of said is sang. I suspect he might have a wee musical bias there. Do you know? But nevertheless, creation then is God's song. Creation is God's symphony. Elaine said creation is God's dancing. According to the science of bioacoustics, millions of songs are being sung right now that we can't hear because our hearing just isn't good enough. Really limited. Anything above and beyond is infrasonic or ultrasonic, so we can't hear whale songs that travel 4,000 miles through the ocean. We can't hear a meadowlark that has a range of 300 notes what about earthworms? Earthworms, for goodness sake. Super sensitive sound instruments have found that they have a faint staccato note that they sing. Arnold Summerfield, a German physicist and pianist, said that hydrogen atoms, which emit 100 frequencies, are more musical than grand pianos, which have 88. So when Revelation 5 13 says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. I don't think that's a future tense prophecy. I think that's a present tense reality. It's just that we don't hear it. Now, the day is going to come when we get a glorified body. I hope you're looking forward to that. I'm certainly looking forward to some abs, maybe. Um, but... I have no idea what those bodies are going to be look are going to look like, but with our glorified senses, we're going to see colours that we've never been able to perceive before. With our glorified hearing, we're going to hear angel song, and we're going to hear all of that. We can only see about ten million colours, but the day is going to come when we are going to see things that will blow our minds. So when scripture talks about mountains singing or trees clapping, I don't think that is just metaphorical. It's also bioacoustical. Creation is God's song. He sang every atom into existence and every atom echoes that song back to him. It's a call and response. God is bigger than big. According to the Doppler effect, the universe is still expanding. You have to understand about 100 years ago, that was a very novel thought, very uh, new idea. Edwin Hubble speaking to the American Astronomical Society. He, he proposed that idea. And I think the latest estimate that I found is that it's now about 93 billion light years across. An incredible, I mean, it's just beyond my tiny brain to work that out. All from four words. Let there be light. If God can do that with four words, why are we worried? 
God can do that with four words. Why do you and I fret about stuff? You see, we hear the word said and we think phonics. But I think we also need to think physics. Sound is first and foremost a form of energy. We use our voices to speak and God uses his voice to create, to heal, to convict, to reveal. He speaks in frequencies that are way beyond our hearing and even our ability to understand. We think the earth is pretty big. I mean, it is 24,750 miles in circumference, which is it's big. You know, if you have to go, I mean, we go to Uganda and it takes hours to fly in a plane. It's a big place. But... Actually, in the grand scheme of what we see in the sky at night, we are a tiny, tiny speck. God holds all of that, we are told, in his hand. And out of all of that, he knows how many hairs you and I have on our head. Some of us, it's much easier to count. God is bigger, bigger than big, bigger than big. Isaiah 55, he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So here's my point. Your best thought on your best day is 93 billion light years away from how good and how God, how, how great God really is. God is bigger than big. God isn't just great. Because nothing is too big. God is great because nothing is too small. Psalm 36, verses 5 and 6 in the message says this. God's love is meteoric. His loyalty astronomic. His purpose titanic. His verdicts oceanic. Yet in his largeness, nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. So God is bigger than big. He is transcendent. He exists outside of these uh, space and time dimensions that we live in. We have a hard time imagining that. We don't get that when the Bible says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day to God. That that makes no sense if we are existing in our time. But he is outside of time and outside of space. Instead of letting God create us in his image, we end up trying to create God In our image. God is bigger than big and he is closer than close. See, closer than close, I kind of understand a bit more. I can I kind of get my head around that because we've just had, you know, Emmanuel, God with us at Christmas time. God came into the world. I get that. That you know, I don't really understand it all, but you know, I I understand the point and the concept. And this first revelation that we read this morning of, of God. Holy Spirit is, is hovering over the, the, the surface of the deep, the first revelation that there is a Holy Spirit. He hovers over the surface. The Hebrew word for hover there is, is multidimensional. In regard to time, it refers to the split second before and the split second after. It's like brackets in time. In regard to space, it refers to the place right in front and the place right in back. So it's like brackets in space. The psalmist paints the picture. You hem me in behind and before. 
In other words, you are closer than close. God is bigger than big and closer than close. A.W. Tozer, the theologian, said it this way, God is above, but he is not pushed up. He's beneath, but he's not pressed down. He's outside, but he's not excluded. He's inside, but he's not confined. God is above all things, presiding beneath all things, sustaining outside all things, embracing and inside all things, filling. That is the closeness of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, who will never leave us nor forsake us. And what we need to remember for 24 is that God still hovers over the chaos of this world and over the chaos of our lives, just like he hovered over the chaos in the deep. He is the God who wants to bring order out of that chaos, to bring beauty and symmetry out of those things that seem formless and void. He is closer than close. Revelation 3.20 says that he stands at the door of our lives and he knocks. There's been a moment in, in our lives where we have heard the knock on the door of our heart. Some of us have chosen to open it. Some of us haven't done that yet. If you've not, then I hope that you will invite him into your life. Genesis 1.26 says this. God says, let us make mankind in our image. It's a plural. Even in the very first chapter of this book, we have a father and a son and a spirit. We know what the spirit is doing, hovering. But who is speaking? Who's saying, let there be light? I think the apostle John answers that question when we get to John chapter 1. And we link it to Genesis chapter 1. It's no coincidence that John begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Jesus was with God. And the Word was God. And then in verse 3, he says, All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Emmanuel, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, born into this world as a human baby. He who was in the beginning, he was the word speaking all things into creation. Do you know, we talk about there being a BC. We divide our calendar. Well, we now say BCE if we're being politically correct. But AD and BC. But theologically, there's not a BC. Because he's always existed. He's always been. He's always there. In Genesis, he's the creator. In Exodus, he's the deliverer. In Leviticus, he's the Passover lamb. In Ruth, he is the redeemer. In the Psalms, he's our shepherd. In Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire. In Nahum, he's the stronghold in the day of trouble. In Haggai, he is our signet ring. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. There's a picture that goes all the way through of Jesus 
and of God the Father. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Until you have an understanding of what God did on day one, two, three, four, five, six, resting on day seven, you haven't begun to understand what God is capable of doing in your life. There is nothing that he cannot heal. There is nothing he cannot restore. There are no circumstances that you face that are too much for God to deal with. You can trust him in this new year and every year. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you and we invite you right now into our hearts and into our lives. We thank you that at the beginning of this year, the beginning of this journey for what you are going to do, because we believe you are still at work in the world and in us. And thank you that you invite us to be part of this ongoing story that you are writing. You tell amazing stories. So we step into that story. And Lord, I pray for any person who has never committed themselves to you. May they do that today so that 2024 would be the brand new start with you that they need. Amen.